Welcome to Critical Matters, a sound podcast covering a broad range of topics related to the practice of intensive care medicine. Sound provides comprehensive critical care programs to hospitals across the country. To learn more about our programs and career opportunities, visit www.soundphysicians.com. And now, your host, Dr. Sergio Zanotti. It is common for patients who were poisoned or have overdoses under different circumstances to be admitted to the ICU. There is a wide range of clinical syndromes caused by overdoses that lead to critical illness. This episode of the podcast is the first of two-part series on toxicology in the ICU. Today, in part one, we will cover the general approach to treatment, and in a future episode, part two, we will dive deeper into specific toxins. Our guest is Dr. Gerald Lakin. Dr. Lakin is currently the Director of Medical Toxicology at North Shore University Health System Omega, which includes several hospitals in Illinois. He is Associate Director of the Toxicon Consortium based at John H. Stronger Hospital of Cook County in, in Chicago. In addition, he's a Clinical Professor of Medicine at the Pritzker School of Medicine, University of Chicago, and Professor of Medicine and Pharmacology at Rush Medical College. Dr. Lakin has published extensively in the field of toxicology and is an active toxicologist in clinical practice. Finally, Dr. Lakin was one of my attendings during residence and fellowship. I would be remiss not to take the opportunity to thank him for all he taught me and especially for doing it always in the most supportive and encouraging way. Thank you, Jerry, and welcome to Critical Matters. Thank you very much for inviting me. So I think that um, I would like to start with maybe getting some definitions clear. I, when, we, when, we, when we search for, for, for overdoses or poisoning or um, intoxications, people use all these terms like overdose, toxic ingestion, or poisoning interchangeable. Does it really matter? Are they different? I believe they are. Um, first of all, the definition of overdose that we usually follow is an excessive dosage which there is no expected therapeutic benefit. For example, if someone takes five aspirin, um, that is an excessive dose, but there is some benefit to taking five aspirin. The risk certainly may not be worth the benefit, but there is some benefit. There's absolutely no benefit to taking 50 aspirin or 100 aspirins um, in the sense. So that's an overdose, is where there is no uh, expected therapeutic benefit, which is due to an excessive dose. Um, toxic ingestion. Um, is essentially uh, an ingestion that can produce an adverse effect. That's almost a definition of uh, toxicology in general, which is a study of drugs or uh, chemicals which can produce an adverse effect in humans. Intoxication is an, usually a nervous system abnormality due to a drug or toxin such as alcohol. Inebriation is inability to perform daily, acts of daily living or activities of daily living due to a drug or toxin. For example, if someone is passed out due to alcohol, that's inebriation and probably alcohol intoxication, but more specifically inebriation, as opposed to a functioning uh, drunk who's walking and talking uh, that is intoxicated with alcohol, that's intoxication. And, and when do you use the word poison? Does that have to do with the intent or, or not necessarily? Not, not necessarily. It could be a... a an accidental poisoning per se, um, in, in the sense, but it's similar to intoxication in that it's an adverse effect uh, due to a dose effect relationship uh, from a drug or toxin. Okay. So I think that for the rest of the, uh, of the podcast, 
we'll probably use some of these terms. Hopefully, I'll use them appropriately. But really, what we're talking about is the injection of, of a drug or chemical that has produced toxicity. So toxic ingestions would be kind of the, the overarching theme, I guess, for the rest of the, of the conversation. Could you start, Jerry, with telling us, uh, giving us a general overview of what are the numbers like in terms of toxic ingestions in the U.S. for people, for adults uh, re re requiring further medical treatment? Uh, certainly, Sergio. Well, first of all, uh, toxicology is one of the very few fields in medicine that's centralized. Uh, we have a set of poison centers, 55 of them in the United States, that all feed their data into one place. And so every call into a poison center is computerized. Um, and all calls to the poison centers uh, are essentially followed up within 48 hours. So we have a database of approximately 200, 2 million exposures nationally per year over the past 30 years um, in this sense. So th th that's the number of calls that are called into poison centers uh, yearly. It's approximately, actually uh, in the year 2017, it was 2,115,186,000 human exposures, which comes out to approximately 6.4 per thousand population. And among those, about a mil, uh, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say about a million of those were pediatric exposures. Okay. And, and among those, what would be the, the most common uh, toxins in adults and what are the, most, the ones that are most dangerous or most likely to cause death? Well, the top five human exposures overall are analgesics, accounting for about 11% of all calls into poison centers, household cleaning substances, about 7%, uh, cosmetics, about 6.5%, uh, sedatives, antipsychotics, hypnotics, um, and antidepressants. Uh, they, may, they round out the list of uh, top human uh, exposures. Uh, for top... Uh, five or six common calls age under five years old, they run into cosmetics, household cleaning products, analgesics, foreign bodies or toys, or uh, ingestion of topical uh, products. Now, as far as fatalities uh, go, 86% um, of all deaths are due to pharmaceuticals uh, called into poison centers. And these involve sedative hypnotics, cardiovascular drugs, of course, the opioids, stimulants, analgesics, and antidepressants. And I think it's important to, to emphasize that even though some of these obviously might be prescription medications, they're widely available in many households. And uh, that's why probably the numbers are, are so high, like, like you mentioned earlier. That's true. That's exactly true. So you talked about the, uh, the centralized nature of the practice of toxicology. And I think that this would be a good place to maybe, if there's anything that people take home, is that when they have a suspected toxic, toxic ingestion, they can call a poison center and get help, correct? 1-800-222-1222. That's a, a line. If you call it any place uh, in this country, you'll be uh, sent to the local poison center. Uh, because one other aspect that people don't realize is that poison center is the first line or front line agent for to what we call toxico surveillance. Uh, that is that uh, all this data that are uh, that we get through the poison center, all these calls are uploaded to a national database every eight minutes, which is astounding if you think about it. So therefore, we can tell if an epidemic is occurring, if an unusual uh, cluster of overdoses or toxicities are occurring within an hour or two. 
Um, this helped us as far as uh, last year with the synthetic cannabinoid occurrence that was contaminated with brodificone, which is a rat poison, and that caused bleeding, uh, of which uh, I believe up to date there, there are about four deaths associated with it. But we were able to identify it literally within hours of these calls being called into the poison center. Had there not been any poison center, uh, the correlation to this agent might have been very difficult to take and take it to take weeks or months to try to secure this uh, association overall. But we were able to associate it within uh, literally hours. And I think that that's a very important point that many of our listeners might not be aware. So it's not only that as a provider or physician that taking care of a po possible toxic syndrome that you can get help from a poison center, but you have a responsibility to sharing information, especially when there's maybe a weird, uh, uncommon presentation, because it might be part of a bigger cluster that's affecting other patients. And without that information, it, it becomes very difficult to identify that. Exactly. Uh, we, we often contact the CDC or the local boards of health or the local public health departments uh, for these issues, uh, also to try to secure appropriate antidotes that may be rarely available, um, in addition to coordinate the care, to standardize the care, uh, so to speak. Um, and we can offer also uh, some places in which these patients can be referred to. So I'll include that, I'll repeat that number, 1-800-222-1222 is the poison center for all the country. Correct. So let's talk a little bit about diagnosis, Jerry. And I think that um, one of the, the difficulties with, uh, with toxic ingestions is that a lot of times these patients come with nonspecific findings and it has a very broad differential. Uh, they don't always come with an empty box of, or, or, or bottle of pills and saying, I took all this. So what are some of the th uh, symptoms or presentations that should prompt a physician or an advanced care provider to think about a possible toxic ingestion or toxic effect? Well, certainly uh, certain symptoms that occur suddenly in an individual that's previously healthy uh, should be a consideration, such as muscle rigidity or seizures or delirium. Uh, nystagmus, especially if it's rotatory nystagmus, uh, that could be a clue for a toxic ingestion. Obviously, blood pressure changes and unexplained cardiac arrhythmia um, acute liver or renal failure, um, in the sense, electrolyte abnormalities, particularly uh, with glucose, uh, sodium, and potassium. Um, and the, one of the basic things that we look at, of course, are anion gap acidosis, osmolar gap, um, and one, one of the other important aspects uh, that we see in overdose patients or toxic patients as a manifestation of toxicity is non-exertional or non-exercise-induced rhabdomyolysis. So uh, these, these are some of the important clues that uh, of an individual taken in a substance that can cause uh, these major problems. And I think that, that also another area where, where toxic ingestions or toxic effects of medications is very prevalent is in our elderly population, especially those who are institutionalized, where there seems to be an increasing number of uh, medications that people get with polypharmacy, and they come with... Uh, with a very low cognitive baseline, and now there's a change in mental status, and we really don't have a good opportunity to get a good history. I presume that, that that's a population that's at high risk as well, correct? Yes, and those can be some of the most difficult uh, things uh, to evaluate 
and to in, uh, discover what the etiology is. Because oftentimes, as you stated, it's uh, multiple drugs, uh, polypharmacy, and therefore the individuals don't present with the classic, what we call toxidrome, which is a group or pattern of signs and symptoms associated with a particular class of substances, such as hot as a hair, uh, red as a beet, mad as a hatter, that's the anticholinergic. Uh, toxidrome. Uh, with, when we're talking about the elderly, it's usually polypharmacy, and so the physical exam uh, won't really give you as many clues as with a younger individual that just took one drug. So you mentioned the, the, uh, the word toxidromes, and I was going to ask you, is this something that as a toxicologist you find practical, or is it something that we study for boards? Well, it's a little bit of both, but it's very practical, uh, especially in the pediatric ingestions. Um, it was a term coined by Howard Moffison back in uh, 1970, the Pediatric Clinics of North America, um, and uh, he coined this term uh, to, be, to determine the pattern of symptoms or signs uh, due to specific substances, uh, the cholinergic signs, for example, um, salivation, lacrimation, urination, defecation, GI signs, emesis. Um, these group of signs and symptoms, they're, they're pretty reliable for single ingestions. And of course, one of the most important things we look at uh, is pupil size, uh, meiosis versus madriasis. And especially with madriasis, for example, um, for the sympathomimetics such as amphetamine and cocaine, uh, individuals may have uh, dilated pupils as they do with anticholinergic agents such as antihistamines. But with anticholinergic agents, uh, the pupils do not respond to light, whereas with the sympathomimetics such as cocaine, they do respond to light. So these are important clues that can give an idea of, uh, even though the other symptoms may be similar, um, these are important clues that uh, we can differentiate what the drug classification is. And it is a whole concept that it's important to know what the drug classification is. Um, it, it almost doesn't matter if it's diphenhydramine or dioxylamine. They're both antihistamines. They're both treated pretty much the same. So in this sense, um, it, it's important to know the drug classification. So I think that just for, for a review for some of our, uh, our audience, can we just go over the, the basic um, toxidrome? So you already mentioned the cholinergic toxidrome. Um, there's also an anticholinergic, right, which, I mean, would be a little bit different. Correct. Correct. And then, uh, of course, it's a sedative hypnotics and opioid, uh, one narcotic or sedative hypnotics, in which virtually everything is uh, depressed. The heart rate's depressed, respiratory rate's depressed, the temperature is oftentimes hypothermic, the pupil size is uh, low, bowel, signs, bowel sounds are depressed, and uh, the patients um, have uh, pretty much dry skin um, in a sense. Then you have sympathomimetic or stimulants um, where everything is elevated, um, such as a heart rate, respiratory rate, temperature, pupil size, uh, bowel sounds are increased, and the patients are often diaphoretic. So these these are some of the other types of toxidromes, um, which one doesn't really need any blood levels or urine levels uh, to understand. If you have these uh, instances in a clinical scenario of an overdose, uh, these could be quite helpful. And uh, two of the, I, I guess, situations that are not very common uh, that really don't almost fall into any of those toxidromes and are very specific that, that I've seen occasionally over the years, but it's something that we read more about than actually see in the critical care, are the serotonin syndrome and the neuromoleptic uh, syndrome. Can you uh, comment a little sure. bit on that? Well, serotonin syndrome, by definition, one has to have change in dose 
of an SSRI or a similar sort of substance within 48 hours of presentation. And usually the serotonin syndrome, about 70% of the time, resolves within one day. So it, it's almost unheard of that a serotonin syndrome is lasting for a week or so um, in this way. It usually resolves within one day, as opposed to neuroleptic malignant syndrome, which uh, the temperatures are extremely high, uh, the pa patient is rigid, uh, essentially, and unlike serotonin syndrome, uh, where there's quite a bit of tremors, here the patient is very rigid, um, and it can last for several days or even weeks. So as we evaluate a patient, the first step would be obviously get the history, start with the exam, trying to identify these toxidromes, that which, like you said, are going to be very useful in single uh, drug ingestions or single drug uh, toxic effects. Um, the next step, I guess, is starting to get some diagnostic tools. And what are some of the, the laboratory tests that you would order on a regular basis in somebody who you're suspecting a toxic uh, ingestion? Well, um, I order uh, the usual tests for the most part, and that tells us quite a bit. Uh, for example, um, we, we order the CMP, or Complete Metabolic Profile, um, looking at the liver function tests. Uh, the electrolytes, trying to see if there's an anion gap acidosis. But more importantly than that is to look for the trend. Is the bicarb going down? Usually with bad toxic alcohol ingestions or salicylate ingestions that can cause an anion gap acidosis, the bicarb uh, and will decrease as the anion gap increases, no matter what you do short of dialysis um, in this way. If, if uh, a person is getting intravenous fluids and some intravenous uh, bicarbonate, uh, sodium bicarbonate, and the uh, bicarb is going straight up, in other words, the anion gap acidosis is uh, normalizing, then it's unlikely to be a significant toxic ingestion uh, because true toxic ingestions that cause a metabolic acidosis, um, this acidosis is just generated and uh, just continues on unless definitive uh, therapeutic modalities are performed, such as dialysis. So to me, it's, it's not only getting the lab test, but it's also looking at the trends. I oftentimes get osmolality, serum osmolality, to look for an osmo gap to consider if it's a toxic alcohol per se, um, CBC, EKG, particularly focusing on the intervals such as QRS interval and QTC interval. Um, overall, the SSRIs are known to cause a prolonged QTC over 500 milliseconds. Um, and then uh, oftentimes we do the drug screen, but the drug screen pretty much uh, more or less confirms what we already know um, in the sense it just gives us a quantitative number as far as the blood tests go, as far as salicylate or acetaminophen. Um, of course, there's no quantitation on the urine drug screen. And so um, those are some of the basic things. Uh, that I get for just about anyone that comes in with altered mental status. So let's dive a little bit more into some of these I think that are very important. So the first I think take home message, Jerry, is that you really get like a basic panel of labs, nothing very fancy or specialized, and that you're more interested in following trends and seeing how things are evolving. But you did mention the urine drug screen, and could you just uh, maybe uh, give us some insight into some of the situations where we may have a false positive or a false negative and uh, when it might not be as useful, like you said, in confirming what we're suspecting? Well, uh, there are many false positives with opiates and amphetamines. Um, almost any uh, over-the-counter cold pill um, or pill used for colds uh, can cause a positive uh, amphetamine. And opioids 
um, are really for coating and uh, morphine. Um, synthetic opioids can give you a positive uh, opiate drug screen, uh, but so can poppy seeds. And so um, the drug screens in itself have some utility, but relatively limited utility. The one thing I always say is that if a person comes in with a positive barbiturate uh, screen, that someone that that has to be investigated because I've seen too many instances where a person comes into the hospital with a positive barbiturate screen and they're not given barbiturates and they may be surreptitiously taking a medication that has barbiturates and they go into barbiturate withdrawal um, in the uh, hospital. And barbiturate withdrawal is probably the most lethal type of drug withdrawal there is. And so that's one thing on a drug screen that should never be ignored. Um, when it comes to cannabinoids or marijuana, um, there is roughly a 4% or 5% false positive rate. Uh, turns out omiprazole um, can cause a false positive marijuana screen. And so um, there are several types of drugs that can cause false positive. That's why it's important in the critical care situation, we always get the confirmation. Uh, the immunoassay is the drug screen, uh, gas chromatography and mass spectrometry or GC mass spec is the confirmation. Um, and so I would always suggest to get um, a, a confirmation test done on the drug screen for patients in the intensive care unit. So we know precisely what was taken and we know precisely how much was taken. And that can be determined from a urinary amount of certain drugs. So I think that's an important lesson. And also, I think, like you mentioned earlier, always correlating what you're seeing clinically, right? So if you have a positive amphetamine in your urinary drug screen, but somebody's depressed and not breathing with a, a non-reactive pupil, maybe it's not amphetamine, that's a false positive. So I think kind of like making sure that you correlate with what you're seeing at the bedside. Correct. Uh, usually the drug screens, uh, one can predict what the drug screens can show. And uh, as I said, to me, uh, the purpose of all these tests is to confirm your clinical suspicion, not to make a diagnosis, but to confirm it. So you also mentioned gaps, and obviously I think that everybody's very familiar with the annual gap and the, uh, the, the acronyms that we all learned in med school with mud piles and some of the, the, the causes of uh, increased anion gap acidosis, which a lot of them are toxic ingestions or toxin substances. What about the osmolar gap? Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Do you routinely check that? Sure. Um, I check it in increasing acidosis. If an individual has um, a bicarb that's going down or anion gap that's going up, I will routinely check that. Um, and uh, serum osmoles um, are highest for methanol, but can occur with ethylene glycol and isopropyl alcohol. Um, however, isopropyl alcohol does not give you an anion gap acidosis. Um, so that's one difference there. Um, other drugs such as high Depakote uh, levels can in theory give you a little bit of an osmolar gap. Uh, Depakote is um, essentially an alcohol in this way. Um, but um, the mo two most commons are ethylene glycol and methanol, and methanol has a highest contribution to the osmolar gap. So exceedingly high uh, serum osmoles, um, around 400 or so, it's usually methanol. Okay, so obviously not only important for boards, but also important when we're taking care of patients and making sure that we're looking into this to get some clues into what have happened, especially in somebody who might be unresponsive and unable to provide a good history. Yes. What about, Jerry, what about uh, the 
auction saturation gap? I mean, is that something that you only do in certain cases? How do you think about that? Um, that's I only do that. I very rarely do it because usually we can get uh, carbon monoxide levels and things like that pretty rapidly, um, and especially with uh, the pulse ox uh, imagery type of technology that can do screenings uh, for that. And uh, I, I like to get uh, actual methanol levels. I'm, I'm sorry, methemoglobin levels, um, along with cyanide levels as necessary. But the cy with cyanide, um, we which really doesn't is not a big factor in the oxygen saturation gap. Um, you can usually tell that with a n no change in the venous O2 and the arterial O2 concentrations. So there are other ways uh, to measure that. We don't use that as much, although. That is a kind of a question the board's like. Yeah. And what about, uh, you mentioned some th uh, throughout the conversation, but could you just give us maybe a short list of, of substances or medications or uh, toxins where a specific level is readily available and might be useful? Well, uh, avail available levels are uh, usually uh, present for uh, salicylates, acetaminophen, and ethyl alcohol. So um, those are three things that can be done usually in the hospital setting. And actually, on individuals who have a psychiatric history and they're coming in with an unknown uh, ingestion or altered mental status, I almost always will get a carbonazepine level, valproic acid level, and lithium level. Those, again, can be done right away, uh, usually within the hospital, and uh and the whole point is a diagnosis can be made uh, with uh, just getting those levels because uh, these individuals can have all sorts of uh, variable types of neurologic signs that can make it very difficult to make the diagnosis uh, without the levels. Um, and especially since a lot of these uh, patients who may have a psychiatric history may not be able to give you a history of what medications they are or that may not be easily obtainable. So those, those levels I often will get. Um, if I have an unknown acidosis, I also will get an iron level, a serum iron level, because that can be a cause for an acidosis. So I think that a lot of these, like you mentioned, are going to be readily available in, in more obscure toxic ingestions, obviously having an ongoing conversation with our poison center uh, and sending some labs uh, to a referral center might be what we need. But uh, these are very, very, very valuable. Is there any value in digoxin levels? We don't see as much um, digoxin, but people still take it. If a person has a crazy, if I can use that term, cardiac rhythm, a very abnormal one, a biventricular, uh, bidirectional ventricular tachycardia, for example, or something along those lines, uh, an elevated potassium with elevated uh, renal function uh, tests at, uh, or acute renal failure, um, and there's an unknown ingestion, that might be helpful. That might be the pl place to get these uh, digoxin levels. Also, certain plants, uh, such as foxglove, uh, can have uh, measurable dig levels on ingestion, in, especially in children. Excellent. So I guess that um, as we uh, work on the diagnosis, a lot of times these patients, especially when they arrive to the hospital, and the ones that we're going to be seeing are going to be critically ill. The the old teaching was, I mean, you start with a coma cocktail. Can you maybe start telling us what are the first interventions that you start doing in terms of therapy, and uh, what is the current thoughts uh, of a coma cocktail? What are the things that we should be doing up front? 
Certainly. Um, well, first, we always do the ABCs, airway, breathing, circulation aspect. The coma cocktail um, is usually done uh, by EMTs or the paramedics um, as far as uh, giving oxygen, um, giving, uh, making sure the glucose is appropriate, uh, diamond to prevent Wernicke-Korsakoff uh, syndrome um, when giving the glucose, and uh, naloxone. Um, naloxone was given uh, um, over 26,000 times according to poison centers in the year 2017. So that um, is one of the more common antidotes they're given. It is of interest, Sergio, that uh, uh, only about 5% of all overdoses is it requires an antidote, which means that 95% of uh, overdoses called into poison centers don't get an ad antidote and are, for the most part, treated successfully with supportive care, decontamination, and the like, um, in the sense. And so that that is one aspect that's probably the most important aspect overall, besides decontamination and uh, antidotes, is supportive care. Um, but naloxone is one of our most successful antidotes. It reverses um, opiate and opioid toxicity rapidly, as most individuals know. It can also help reverse uh, clonidine toxicity, uh, certain sedatives like uh, valproic acid. It has been used for benzos, although flumazenil is much better. Um, but uh, it is, uh, as I stated, very successful in increasing the respiratory rate uh, in opioid overdose. Um, usually uh, the indication is to give it if respiratory rate is uh, under 10. About and, eight or so. And I had read, I mean, and I think that we're going to talk about specific uh, to toxins and toxicities in a future episode. But I think naloxone, like you mentioned, Jerry, because of the, the, the amount that is utilized every year and because of uh, within the range of toxic ingestions, probably is, is by far the most uh, utilized and effective antidote. And I think every, every, every listener probably has had a patient that received naloxone. It's something that we see on a regular basis. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about how to best use it and, and who I read that if you have somebody with meiosis, a respiratory rate below 12 and altered sensorium, uh, it is very, very, very likely that if you give them a dose of naloxone, it would work. Yes. Uh, as long as it, in toxicology, we believe in uh, larger doses than most individuals. Um, I don't usually use start at point four. Of course, I see a lot of these patients in the emergency department uh, where we want to get their breathing up up above uh, 10 or 12 per minute um, in a sense. And so we give uh, anywhere from 0.8 to 2 milligrams of naloxone. And now that we are in the synthetic stage of uh, the opioid epidemic, that is that we're seeing a lot of fentanyls uh, overdoses, uh, along with methadone and other types of uh, synthetic opioids. Uh, naloxone works for that, but doesn't work at the lower doses. So these individuals may need quite a bit more than two milligrams IV of naloxone to reverse their respiratory depression. So you, I think this is important because I've also seen that people might give a very low dose, like a 0.2 milligram, and report that it didn't work. So especially in patients who might have synthetic opioids, that might not be enough. It's not. It's not a, a therapeutic dose. They need a much higher dose. Correct. Correct. Um, I believe uh, one should look at doses of two, four, uh, eight milligrams in that ballpark before saying it doesn't work. And what are the dangers of giving an naloxone? What should be, people be aware of potential side effects? Obviously, withdrawal with some medications would be a concern. But 
what should we be careful with? For the most part, that's it. It's a, it's a, a narcotic withdrawal. Um, doesn't really have any direct cardiac or other types of effects. There's no systemic effects other than the specific um, mu antagonist, which is uh, the opioid uh, pathway. And so that's, that's pretty much it, is the withdrawal and sometimes the hyperagenergic response that comes with the withdrawal. But that usually resolves in about 20 to 40 minutes after the naloxone dose. And this is just a question that I've always had, and I don't want to dive too deep into that rabbit hole, which is a specific opioid toxicity. But I always debate or wondered, from a cost efficiency standpoint, is there a difference of having somebody in the unit on an naloxone drip waiting for their opioids to go away versus having somebody who was intubated just wake up and then extubate them? I'm just curious, I mean, if there's any data on that, Jerry. There's no data on, on that particular question that I know of. Um, naloxone drips are pretty harmless in itself. Uh, it's very difficult, and I'm not going to say impossible, but very difficult to overdose on naloxone per se um, in, in this manner. Um, so uh, I don't know of any specific data looking at that instance uh, overall, but it does make sense that uh, if you can prevent intubation, which is what we try to do with naloxone administration, that's what we try. That that's the goal overall. And my suspicion is, from what we're talking right now, and from my previous clinical experience, is that often patients who come to me intubated to the ICU with an opioid yeah. overdose probably did not receive an adequate dose of naloxone as a trial. So they get intubated very quickly as a naloxone failure, didn't work naloxone. And it might be because people are utilizing the, the commonly recommended doses of 0.2 to 0.4, which might be too low. Yes, I believe it should be in milligrams. There's one other aspect is that the heroin um, that we see is often contaminated with other substances and not just fentanyl or other opioid type of substances. Um, in my area, I see uh, heroin that's contaminated with diphenhydramine. I see heroin that's contaminated with, uh, uh, with certain antidepressants. Um, and so uh, uh, basically, it, there, there are other sedatives that are associated with heroin um, and heroin overdoses. And it's really more of the other types of the uh, illicit substances other than heroin that's causing the major problems. Um, and so from that aspect, uh, we're dealing not with heroin overdoses per se, but heroin plus something else as far as illicit drugs go. And so in those cases, um, a few milligrams of naloxone won't be enough. Okay. I think that's an important point. So what about the concept of GID contamination? Obviously, the, the rationale is to try to remove a the toxin before it gets absorbed, but there's been a lot of back and forth and not a lot of literature to support some of the practices that we used to have. And I just wonder what is currently recommended and what do we still do for GI decontamination? Well, back in the old days, uh, and that was uh, back in the early 1980s, if I can use that term, uh, Ipecac was used quite a bit. Ipecac syrup, uh, which causes vomiting, and when I say causes vomiting, the vomiting doesn't really stop. Um, and it was used in 15% of all uh, poisoning exposures or overdoses in 1985. Um, last year, uh, it was only used in 0.003%. It's really no longer used anymore because individuals are vomiting and vomiting, and then they become uh, 
uh, essentially comatose and they're still vomiting and then they seize and they uh, still vomiting and aspiration occurs and you can't stop the vomiting. So Ipecac is no longer used. That should be confined to the medical textbooks and medical history books um, in this way. As far as other areas of GI decontamination, um, which was used about almost 50% of the times uh, in patients, uh, according to the Poison Center data, um, gastric lavage was only used about 1,000 cases. We hardly ever use that. And the reason is, is because the most you can re realistically remove is about 30%. Uh, by gastric lavage, 30% of the ingested substance. And so the whole aspect of putting a, literally a garden hose down through someone's esophagus, even when they're, they're awake, uh, to remove at, at most 30% of the substance just doesn't make sense. Um, and so we hardly ever use gastric lavage anymore. Activated charcoal um, at one gram per kilogram is probably one of the more common decontamination agents that we use. It is the most common. And it was used in almost 37,000 cases in the year 2017. Um, a single dose, it absorbs, absorbs uh, quite a few substances, not good for cyanide or iron or lithium, but outside of most of those, it's really pretty effective. Um, you can remove almost 50% if given within one hour, maybe about 30% after about three hours uh, time. Um, the most effective way of GI decontamination is uh, whole bowel irrigation. Um, giving polyethylene glycol at one and a half to two liters an hour for five hours or until the rectal effluent is clear. That can remove as much as 67% of ingested substances. It was used in about 1,600 cases in the year 2017, mostly for uh, the extended release products uh, along with lithium and sometimes iron overdoses of which activated charcoal doesn't really work well for. So from, from what you're telling me really in terms of uh, if you have a, a broad group of patients and don't have like very specific information and you're dealing with maybe polysubstance, it seems that one dose of activated charcoal is what most of those patients would get and the other ones are either not utilized anymore or reserved for very specific cases. That's correct. And actually, we're uh, not using activated charcoal in children under f uh, five years old or five years old or less, um, for the most part, uh, not too much anymore, because these children usually don't take enough to cause real problems. And there's more of a problem in giving them the activated charcoal, which no one wants to drink. In 1993, 3.7% uh, of the children I received activated charcoal in 2017 it was only 0.6% um, in the sense, in fact, only about 1.4% of all toddlers receive any kind of gastric decontamination. And, and the other way of eliminating toxin is with enhanced elimination. And obviously the most common modality is dialysis. Can you talk a little bit about that in general terms? And then maybe in the next episode, sure. when we talk about specific toxins, we'll go into more details, but just give us an overview. Well, the, the, the two uh, modalities are, that are most used, is hemodialysis being one, uh, was used about 2,600 times in the United States in the year 2017, mostly for lithium, uh, salicylates, and the toxic alcohols, occasionally for some of the barbiturates um, overall. Um, one, the pharmacologic considerations for dialysis include a small volume distribution, usually less than one liter per kilogram, uh, low protein binding, usually less than 70%, low molecular weight, usually less than 600 Daltons, and water solubility. Of course, and this is oftentimes a board's question, uh, we oftentimes uh, manipulate the urine pH 
making it higher or more alkaline for a certain specific substance such as salicylates or phenobarbital. Those are two substances that can be enhanced by ion trapping uh, as far as its elimination goes. So there's enhanced elimination with salicylates and phenobarb um, when the urine pH is over seven and a half. Uh, and alkalinizing the urine does help for those two substances. It also helps for other obscure substances like uranium. So with alkalinization of the urine, Jerry, it, one of the things that I have often seen is people think that that just involves giving bicarb. It probably involves checking the pH and knowing what you're doing as well, right? Right, checking the urine pH very frequently and checking the electrolytes because uh, giving this amount of uh, bicarbonate can cause a low potassium, uh, which can cause problems in itself. And, uh, and what are other maybe therapies that can be utilized in the in the initial phase of support? Uh, I know that there's been enthusiasm with uh, hyperinsulinemia at one point. Uh, I don't have a lot of experience with that, but also I know in the OR, I've seen people use high lipid emulsions. Are those uh, therapies still recommended? Are there others that fall in that, in that category? Well, the uh, hyperinsulinemia and euglycemia um, often is used for the calcium channel blockers. Um, it does show to increase the cardiac output in those certain situations. Um, the lipid rescue resuscitation um, is useful for lipid-soluble cardiotoxic drugs, especially useful for the local anesthetics and some of the antidepressants. Um, it acts kind of as a sponge, so to speak, uh, to help decrease the activity of these kind of drugs. A 20% lipid emulsion is used at about 1.5 milliliters uh, per kilogram bolus over a minute, and then uh, another 0.25 milliliters per kilogram per minute for about 30 to 60 minutes um, overall. So that can be quite effective. And, we, and what about the hyperinsulinemia? Is that really just an insulin drip or it's high doses of insulin? High doses of insulin, about one unit uh, per kilogram or so, as much as one unit per kilogram, and monitoring the sugar or the glucose um, with that. Um, and that can, uh, in, in my experience, really uh, serve to increase the uh, cardiac output uh, transiently and over this period of time, especially in calcium channel blocker overdoses. Excellent. So we've talked about this uh, before, and I know from uh, talks that I've seen you present, and you mentioned actually that only 5% of uh, tox toxic ingestions call to a potion center got an antidote. So the key really is, and this is where the ICU comes to play, is supportive care. So let's talk a little bit about supportive care in the ICU, Jerry. And I would like to start with maybe just some common indications of which patients come to the ICU. Certainly. Um, as far as a criteria for poison patients to the ICU or admitting them, uh, some of them are pretty obvious, respiratory depression, PCO2s over 45, intubated patients, cardiac arrhythmia, especially those with second or third degree AV blocks, uh, hypotension, Glasgow coma scores less than 12 uh, will re re may require some intensive care unit uh, evaluation and intervention, increasing, increasing metabolic acidosis, pulmonary edema caused by any of these drugs, uh, abnormalities in temperature, um, prolonged QRS over 0.12 seconds or uh, QTC over 500 milliseconds, um, body packers, body stuffers um, in, this, in this way. Hyperkalemia due to dig overdose uh, is another one that automatically requires uh, admission to intensive care unit. 
And th that's not even talking about the PEDS intensive care unit, of which acute intoxications account for about 5% of PEDS ICU admissions um, overall. And the interventions, most common intervention there are mechanical ventilations, invasive access, and occasionally dialysis. Yeah. And I think that in terms of uh, at least my experience uh, clinically, I would say that the most common intervention is hemodynamic monitoring and support, followed by mechanical ventilation, followed by, in a smaller group, hemodialysis. But these are all things that will obviously happen in the ICU. Is there a specific uh, or maybe some specific situations where it might not be apparent on face value of the high risk and an intensivist could be fooled of patients who might uh, who need to be in an ICU? Well, it was, in, in terms of pediatric ICUs, um, certainly any child who ingested an oral hypoglycemic agent, clonidine, uh, carbon monoxide exposures, um, in the sense, I, the drug classes with the highest mortality in children, as far as PEDS ICU, are narcotics, household products, uh, recreational drugs, antidepressants, um, in this sense. So basically, um, any child that's exhibiting symptoms uh, two hours post uh, exposure, and when I say symptoms, I mean clinically significant symptoms, uh, over two hours post exposure should be considered uh, for a PEDS ICU um, in, in this sense. Um, I think oral hypoglycemics is one thing that uh, people may have a false sense of security about, and uh, because these patients can have profound hypoglycemia for literally days. Yeah, and I think that uh, it's something that uh, decades ago has been a, a, a source of tremendous uh, legal problems for some of our ED colleagues who would release these patients home after some dextrose when these drugs were all new, and then they would have a severe hypoglycemia and devastating consequences. So something to think about. Yes. That, that's the whole point, um, in a sense, and uh, these, these patients often need uh, intensive monitoring. Is there any other situation, I mean, uh, that, that you would be concerned about? I guess, I mean, uh, with it depends also when the patient comes, but I, I, we'll talk about it next in the next episode. But uh, with a acetaminophen toxicity, if you see the patient early enough, it might not be, you might, might not be able to identify the tremendous problems that lie ahead, right? That's correct. There's uh, um, very important aspects of regarding acetaminophen, which is similar to iron and salicylates, where a person may appear to be well for a few hours, and then uh, literally, uh, as far as their vital signs and electrolytes, uh, along with hepatic status, uh, become very sick um, after about 10, 12 hours. And so there, there are these delayed effects that can occur with enormous ingestions, usually with acetaminophen ingestions over 150 milligrams per kilogram um, is uh, considered, and, and salicylate ingestions also over 150 milligrams per kilograms uh, can be considered as potentially lethal. Are there any specific aspects of the uh, supportive care that you want to mention on? I mean, I think that at the end of the day, it's just providing good, uh, detail-oriented critical care that looks at the patient as a whole, but are there any specific things that you want to mention in terms of supportive care in the ICU? Well, uh, ventilators was used about 22,000 times, 86% uh, of these in adults, um, according to Poison Center statistics, and vasopressors were used 7,700 times uh, cases. There were 13 toxin-induced transplants that were performed in the year 2017. 
So these are some of the most important parts and uh, aspects of uh, supportive care, but ventilator and uh, vasopressors, I think, are the two biggest aspects that we talked about earlier. So you talked about um, uh, body stuffers and body packers. I know that this is not yeah. necessarily a common place in a lot of uh, ICUs that our, our colleagues practice, but depending on the area, it, it might be. Could you just tell us the distinction and why it's important for them to be in the ICU? Yes, body stuffers are individuals who the police are literally knocking on the door and they're trying to get rid of uh, the cocaine or illicit substance any way they can and they get it, the one way they do it is do it orally. In these cases, uh, intestinal obstruction usually is not seen. It's usually the toxicities are usually seen relatively right away because these things aren't packaged. As opposed to the body packers, where these things are packaged very, uh, very well to some extent, uh, as compared to body stuffers. And so uh, leaking of the packages are somewhat less likely, but can occur. Uh, intestinal obstruction can occur. Uh, usually uh, radiological procedures such as a CT scan may be necessary to see uh, what exactly is going on or how many of these packets are, uh, and they may not be radiodense. Uh, so uh, in, within the GI tract, um, usually some radiological technique is necessary. Excellent. I think that this would be a, a good place to, st to stop for episode one, Jerry. I think that we covered a lot of the uh, general approach. Um, uh, as I said at the intro, we're planning to do a follow-up uh, part two where we're going to dive deeper into some specific uh, toxicities that might be commonly encountered in the ICU. Uh, one of the things that we do at our podcast, uh, Jerry, is at the end of the episode, we ask some questions that tap into the general wisdom of our guest not related to toxicology. Would that be okay? Yes, of course. So the first question or closing question is, is there a book uh, or books that have influenced you the most or that you have gifted most often to others? Well, I have to say, ironically, one of the books that really influenced me, and I've read it uh, two or three times, is the uh, biography of uh, Louis Armstrong, um, which I felt was one of the true American geniuses. Um, didn't... Uh, did not uh, actually uh, take any music lessons or anything like that and literally uh, gave birth to jazz uh, on his own more or less contemporaneously. Um, and I thought that that's a sign of a real genius is, uh, and so in this way, it's, it's, it was really uh, eye-opening um, how a person who never took a music lesson, didn't know how to read music early on and, uh, became one of uh, the most important musicians in the 20th century. Well, I think that's a great recommendation, and I definitely will put it in the show notes. I'm a big jazz fan, and I do think that uh, a lot of uh, people underestimate the, uh, the importance culturally that jazz has around the world. And what I think of one of the, the greatest gifts of, uh, of, uh, of United States culture to the world has been jazz, and Louis Armstrong definitely is one of the the grand grand granddaddies of, of of this genre. So I definitely think that that that's something that we will put in the show notes. Excellent. Yes, I I I think uh, just listening to his Hot Seven and Hot Five recordings of the, of the 1925 to 1928 uh, is really eye opening. Absolutely. The second question relates to beliefs, and uh, is there something that you believe to be true in medicine or in life that a lot of other people don't believe, or most people don't believe? Um, yes, and I, I encounter this all the time. Uh, people don't think marijuana or cannabis can be toxic or can be lethal. 
And certainly that violates one of the number one rules in toxicology as articulated in the 16th century by Paracelsus, the Italian alchemist, who said it's the dose that makes a poison. It's not the substance, it's the dose um, overall. And I encounter too many people in periods and in, in positions of responsibility, such as legislatures um, and uh, leaders that think that uh, cannabis is non-toxic, they think that cannabis cannot kill, that, that there is a cumulative toxicity that can occur. In 2012 and 2013, uh, there were 46 deaths called into Poison Center, in part attributable to cannabis. And so uh, that's one misconception that uh, I believe needs to be corrected. Well, I think that that speaking to Paracelsus, I think that uh, water can kill you, right? <laughs> if you drink yeah, enough water, you will get right. die from hyponatremia. So absolutely. Yes, any substance, any substance taken into excess. And the last question is, uh, is there something that you would want every intensivist or, or advanced provider that listens to our podcast to know? Could be a quote or a fact. Well, it actually, uh, it actually goes with uh, what I just said about cannabis, that individuals, especially young individuals um, with an unknown delirium, psychosis, or something like that, that test positive for cannabis, uh, they should get uh, levels. Um, and if the urine levels over 100 nanograms per uh, cc, um, that should be a consideration that cannabis was taken in excess. Um, and so cannabis can cause uh, things like a variable type of situation, such as a hyperagenergic delirium, or uh, can look like a stroke um, in this sense. And so um, that's what I would want every intensivist uh, to look at. Um, there was a quote by Dr. Bach in the Wall Street Journal in 2000, January 2019, and I think that quote was great. Um, essentially, it says, he said that just because a plant has medicine in it doesn't make uh, the plant, doesn't make the plant medicine. Um, and I think that's true overall in this sense. And I think that that's a great place to, to stop for, for, for part one. Jerry, I really enjoyed the conversation. And uh, we will have you back to talk about some specific toxins, toxins uh, soon. Look forward to it. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for listening to Critical Matters, a sound podcast. Make sure to subscribe to Critical Matters on Apple or Google Podcasts and share with your network. Sound's transforming the way critical care is provided in hospitals across the country. To learn more, visit www.soundphysicians.com.